Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to the Catholic faith. And if there's one thing that I realized as I was asking questions about Catholicism was how little I understood the faith, how little those around me, Catholics included, understood the faith. It was once I began to read and hear about Catholicism from actual Catholic sources that knew their stuff, that I realized how much of what I knew was completely wrong. This podcast is meant to fill that gap. We talk to influential Catholic thinkers about Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And today's episode is no different. I'm joined by Catholic Answers apologist extraordinaire Trent Horn to talk about Jesus. Why do some people think that Jesus was just a myth, or a conglomeration of pagan myths, or just a really nice guy? We tackle these topics, and Trent explains what I think is his trademark apologetic approach. You can't miss it in this episode. And he talks about why he thinks it's so effective for discussing and tackling and correcting these incomplete or incorrect understandings of Jesus. It's a great episode, and I'm blessed that Trent was able to join me. Pilgrimage is something everyone should experience. You leave behind normal life and travel on a spiritual journey to a sacred place. You open yourself up to God's providence, giving Him the space to enrich and enliven your faith. This podcast is sponsored by Select International Tours and Cruises, who have organized Catholic group pilgrimages for 33 years. If you'd like to lead a group, or if you'd like to take part in one that is already booked, head over to selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial to learn more. Thanks so much to Select International Tours for their sponsorship of this show. Thanks as well to my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. You guys are my team, the core that keeps this show running. If you are interested in helping to support the work of this show to keep the lights on and the hosting fees paid, please visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even as little as $1 a month goes a long, long way. So far, thanks to your support, I have not only been able to pay for the costs associated with creating and hosting a podcast, but I've been able to make some crucial upgrades as well. This month, I've purchased a pop filter for my studio microphone, which helps to prevent the hard P sound on words like poodle or podcast or Pelagianism. That's certainly going to come in handy. I've also been able to upgrade our internet bandwidth, which has helped tremendously with all the interviews we've been recording. Actually, when I went to look at our internet package, I'd forgotten we actually downgraded our service a few years ago to save some money when our son was born. We had a hilariously low bandwidth plan, and I'm surprised that any of the interviews I've recorded so far weren't plagued with more problems. But I have been experiencing some problems, no surprise, including this interview on today's episode with Trent Horn. In fact, our first episode, our first attempt to record this episode, we were disconnected four times and had to eventually give up and reschedule. More bandwidth will mean higher quality audio and, Lord willing, no more dropped calls. Thanks to my patrons for making this possible. And I have two new patrons to thank for this episode as well. Thank you, Martin and Josh, for your support. Guys, I can't thank you enough. 
when I started writing about my faith journey about five years ago, when I began this podcast only 19 episodes ago, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that people would actually find this stuff useful, that people would want to support this work. It's been an incredible ride and it's all grace. I'm so blessed to do this, to have these conversations and to bring it all to you. It's truly humbling, so thank you. Here's Trent Horn. Please listen and enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I'm joined by Trent Horn. Trent is an apologist at Catholic Answers, a dynamic speaker, fantastic debater, the host of the popular Council of Trent podcast, and the author of a number of books such as Why We're Catholic, Persuasive Pro-Life, and Counterfeit Christs, Finding the Real Jesus Among the, Apo- the Imposters, which incidentally only has four more copies in stock on Amazon.ca where I checked it out. Uh, I'm up here in Canada. So better get it while it's hot if you're in Canada. Welcome to the podcast, Trent. Thank you for having me. Uh, It is a fantastic book. And uh, I guess my first question is a little bit of maybe a facetious one, but what do you mean by counterfeit Christs? I think a lot of uh, maybe evangelical, non-denominational Protestant listeners, maybe even some Catholic listeners to this podcast would be surprised that there isn't just one Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. So what do you mean by counterfeit Christs? Sure, and they would be correct. There is only one Jesus. There is only one Son of God who became man to redeem us. There, There is only one eternal Son. Uh, the problem is that there are many versions, uh, many accounts of who Jesus is, and uh, the ones that are just far more that vary, uh, that are inaccurate than those that, that are accurate. So there are many false descriptions of who Jesus is. I mean, if you go all the way back to Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples share with him a lot of false answers. They say, well, some people say you're Elijah, people say you're one of the prophets, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And they're not so confident to offer their answer. They, they know other people are getting it wrong. They, they don't want to join that boat necessarily. And so my goal in this book is to show the false understandings many different religious and non-religious people have about Jesus and provide the biblical and historical evidence to show who the real Jesus is. <laughs> that's You know what? That's an excellent uh, apologetic for for the book, because for those who would say, well, there's only only one Jesus, well, you can point right to the New Testament, right, to the time of when Jesus was alive, to say, look, even those around him had different ideas of who he was, right? It's not a modern phenomenon. Oh, right. And Jesus himself warned us. He said, there will be those who will come in my name saying, the Christ is here. I am the Christ. Do not listen to them. Uh, so he himself warned that there would literally be false Christ or counterfeit Christ, those who claim to either be him or to know who the real Jesus is and will lead people astray. And so that's what my book sets out to to set the record straight. Yeah. Oh, that's so well put. Okay. So I think one of the most prevalent counterfeit Christs is the idea of Jesus as a myth or at least some kind of partial myth. I mean, maybe he existed and was a person, but surely didn't do all the things the Bible records. That's, That's impossible. And truly, 
I've had a good, I've had good Bible-believing friends who struggled with their faith because of this uh, view of Jesus, these apparent impossibilities, the inconsistencies in the narrative that have led some scholars, some would say lots and lots of scholars, to believe that Jesus of the Bible is a myth. How do you, and in this book, how do you respond to that challenge? Well, I think we should respond to the challenge by saying that people who say that Jesus is entirely a myth, they tend to have a much more skeptical view of history than average historians. That they, that they when they approach the Bible, uh, they they some I think sometimes they think that well, you either approach the Bible. They, there's two fundamentalist ways to approach Scripture: that you look at the Bible and say everything in the Bible is literally true and is written like a newspaper account so that you strip the poetic elements, the, the spiritual allegory. And so that leads you to things like young earth creationism that says the earth is only 6,000 years old and the Bible is a science textbook. That's one fundamentalist view. The other fundamentalist view is to look at scripture and approach the Bible and say it's 100% literally not true and all of it is made up. And we, you know, there's this kind of prejudicial skepticism that many people bring to the text uh, that's unwarranted to say, well, let's go to the text like a historian would. And what are those bedrock principles, at least everyone, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or whomever, can glean from it? When you look in the New Testament, it's very, very clear. You get, at the very minimum, even the people who say Jesus never existed, they would agree there was a Pontius Pilate, there was a Jerusalem, there were these other figures that are mentioned in the New Testament accounts. Many of them would say that Herod and John the Baptist existed. Uh, so I'll say, well, why don't you believe Jesus existed? Or at least, why, why do you doubt some aspects of his life? And I think there's that overly prejudicial skepticism that we have to um, be able to take into account and be able to answer. Right. So even other figures in the in the stories in the New Testament would be received by historians as being real people, yet somehow Jesus were treating him differently in in that sense. Right. So what I try to do is say, well, look, what are the earliest documents that we have? And, you know, they come from the, uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, and he makes it very clear. Jesus uh, was a man who was Galatians 4, 4. He's born of a woman, born under the law. He was crucified. Uh, he had a last supper with his disciples. Uh, you know, he rose from the dead three days later. We're talking about an individual uh, who existed in history who then commissioned his followers to go and preach on his behalf. Uh, and so when you when you go through that and then the Gospels, some people say, well, I don't trust the Gospels. They say, well, why not? Why, why, why wouldn't you? Let's look at them as historical documents, and they're written relatively close to the events they, they describe. Uh, they're not, the authors are not, uh, if they were made up, you would expect them to have much more famous authors. The apocryphal, apocryphal Gospels, like Philip and Peter, uh, they're written centuries later and are given very famous authors to make up for the fact that they're fictional. But the genuine Gospels, the canonical Gospels, were you know written by Mark and Luke and Matthew, because why, why would you make up these people? Even John, we have good internal evidence, this is related to either the Apostle John or John the Presbyter or someone associated with John the Disciple. So when we look at authorship, when we look at internal textual cues, we see a good amount of evidence for our primary source of the life of Jesus, which are the Gospels. Combine that with letters of Paul and with the non-Christian evidence outside of the New Testament that confirms the identity of Jesus, we have good evidence uh, to overcome that prejudicial skepticism. So what about the skeptic who says Jesus must be a myth because miracles are recorded in the Gospels and miracles don't happen? 
And what I would say here is how do you first, how do you know miracles don't happen? How do you know that? Uh, it's one thing to say there's not there has never been sufficient evidence to believe in a miracle. That's one thing. Uh, but to say you know for a fact miracles don't happen, you'd have to already assume that a naturalist view of the world is true, that God does not exist and doesn't perform miracles, or he chooses not to do that. So you're, you're letting your philosophical preconceptions, or theological preconceptions even, enter into the text, just like the Christian you claim to stand against, or you say is doing bad history. You're doing the same thing. You're begging the question and assuming the Bible's not reliable because it records miracles, and we all know miracles don't happen. Well, you're, you're assuming that. How could you know that? Have you... Even if you didn't have evidence for miracle claims, that wouldn't prove there has never been a miracle. It proves they haven't been substantiated. Second, I think that many skeptics, when they say this, they say that miracles don't happen because there's not scientific evidence for miracles. But that is not a good argument because a miracle, by its definition, is an event that happens when the laws of nature are suspended. Mm-hmm. It's, miracles are not regular occurrences. Science deals with testing things and discovering regular patterns in nature. Uh, science could not discover a, a, could not test for a miracle because it's not a part of the regular operations of the universe. The regular operations have been suspended temporarily. Uh, you know, you might have historical evidence for miracle, and I think there's good historical evidence, especially for Christ's resurrection from the dead. Uh, so that's one route I would take. The other route I would take is to point out that nearly all ancient historians describe miracles in their accounts. If you say an account is not trustworthy because it contains a miraculous description, then you'll have to throw out nearly all ancient history because they claim there were miracles of some kind. You find it in Tacitus and Josephus, omens, portents, miracle workers who make, you know, bring rain miraculously. Uh, So if if they're going to throw out the Bible, they have to throw out basically all ancient history and we couldn't know anything about the ancient world which is something they're not prepared to do. What I would say is, okay, no, let's just look and see what miracles are you willing to to accept? Where does the evidence point? And I think the resurrection best explains the historical bedrock surrounding the crucifixion, burial, and post-mortem appearances of Jesus. Right. So, yeah, and I've heard you, I've heard you talk about this before very eloquently, that the idea that the resurrection is that that miracle is the best way to explain the resurrection and the subsequent narratives. There's no other way that fits that that makes that makes as much sense, right? Right, and so that that's called an argument by inference to best explanation. Uh, so you take uh, a phenomena, and there's lots of different ways to explain things. Uh, some explanations are better than other. Most people prefer simpler explanations one that don't include explanations that themselves have to be further explained, although eventually that's a chain you have to go down with any kind of explanation. Uh, you try to neatly describe all the facts in a simple hypothesis. Uh, so like with the resurrection, if you say the apostles hallucinated, that's not a great explanation because it doesn't explain the conversion of skeptics like Paul, the empty tomb. It doesn't explain the bodily nature of the appearances to the disciples. So, But the resurrection... It explains all the details in the gospel accounts and what we have in the bedrock of history pertaining to the foundation of the Christian faith. It has all that. The only thing it doesn't have going for it for a lot of skeptics is that, well, resurrections are ad hoc. We don't, we, you know, we, you know, we don't see resurrections all the time, so it's not a good explanation. Well, sometimes you need an explanation that you don't see all the time. You know, we have in, in astronomy and cosmology... Uh, the universe is expanding. Uh, there's cosmic microwave background radiation in all parts of it. 
that's best explained by the Big Bang. Well, guess what? Big Bangs don't happen all the time. It only happened <laughs> once. But that doesn't mean people are saying, well, we can't accept that because Big Bangs aren't happening all the time. Well, no, they're not. But it really is the only explanation we have for why the universe is the way that it is. So we, we have to take that because it best explains all the data streams uh, going into it. And we do, we, we do the same with the resurrection of Jesus. I think that's a great explanation. What about people who would point to the idea of inconsistencies in the Gospels? They, I don't know that they would dig, dig much deeper than that, but they would claim that there are so many inconsistencies in the Gospels that it must be a myth. It can't be these writers telling an actual story because it's, there's just too many things that are, are mixed up and inconsistent. Well, here, what I would say is some of these things, people say, well, they're inconsistent. I would say, what kind of inconsistencies are you talking about? Uh, And there's different kinds we we could describe, but we should also take into account what the Gospels are in order to show that apparent inconsistencies are are just that, they're apparent. Uh, So the Gospels are not newspaper accounts or detailed stenographers' notes. Uh, they, they They were written in an ancient context where you could vary details of an account uh, while keeping the main core of the story true. Sometimes if you just don't uh, express a detail, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So one evangelist, for example, will describe, say, that there were two thieves on the cross reviling Jesus, and then another, another evangelist, Luke, will say that one of them later repented. Just because the other gospel author didn't describe how the good thief repented doesn't mean that he did not. That's a detail he left out of his account. Even at the, even if there were irresolvable contradictions, which I don't believe is the case, even if there were, that wouldn't mean it's not historical. There's irresolvable contradictions in testimony about the great fire of Rome that burned down Rome in 64 AD. It doesn't mean Rome didn't burn. Uh, It would just show we have to sift through the, the, the contradictions. But as I said, with the Gospels, I don't think that's the case. Something else to keep in mind is that what we might think is a contradiction is just that the authors may be writing things in a different sequence. Uh, Papias, uh, a church father writing in 125 AD, said that Peter was the traveling, sorry, Mark was the traveling companion of Peter, and uh, he wrote down what Peter told him, but not necessarily in order. So uh, the gospel authors may write, and you may say, hey, he said it happened this time, this other guy says it happened at this time. Well, it's only a contradiction if they're both being chronological. That, That may not be the case. So there's lots of ways when we look in the text, we see charges of inconsistency don't hold up. Yeah, you know what, and I love the approach you take in so much of your apologetics is I think you began that question or that answer by saying, well, what inconsistencies, right? You need to right. ask that, you need to ask the person that's presenting those inconsistencies, well, well, what are you talking about? Because I mean, I have found often that when you ask that question, you don't get much further because there aren't really any inconsistencies they have in mind. Maybe they've just heard their inconsistencies. They've heard, they've heard there are, yeah, right. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It becomes hearsay, and then when you press them, you see they've kind of accepted it as an, as kind of an article of faith against the New Testament. Is is that an apologetic approach you take to, to most questions coming from uh, non-Christians or non-Catholics or, or people who are asking these questions to to kind of back them up first and ask, well, what do you mean? That's right. That's very key, because sometimes we simply assume what the other person means, and they, they should defend what they believe. Like when someone says there's no good evidence for God, I would say, well, how do you know that? How do you know? Well, I've never been presented with it. Okay, well, what arguments have you seen, and what was wrong with them? And if the person can't even answer that question, then I'd say, well, you haven't really looked very hard now, have you? Uh, or someone says that, that Catholics believe in salvation by works. 
instead of having to argue that we don't, you could say, well, why do you think Catholics believe that? What does that mean to you? And it helps you to have a better conversation if you're, you're both talking to each other and not past one another. Yeah, I think that's such an important approach. And I mean, I've spoken to non-Catholic Christian friends in the same way. You hear these things and you you start with, well, okay, so what what do you believe about what I believe? And, and you realize right away, because I mean, when I was a non-Catholic, I had these misconceptions too. You realize right away that what the person is coming from is a place of enormous misconception. And then you can begin to unpack what Catholics actually believe. Right. And so that's why it's important to ask people, what do they think, disabuse them of these falsehoods or misconceptions they have, and then offer them the, the truth in its place and answer any arguments they may have uh, in response to the truth. Right. Okay, so as a non-denominational evangelical, I believed that in a, in a Jesus that came to dismantle and destroy religion altogether and to establish a mere relationship with Christian believers— And we even went so far as to see the Catholic Church as a corruption of Jesus's pure message, because like the Pharisees he condemned, Catholics were so religious. What what can you say about this Jesus, this religion-destroying relationship Jesus? Right. Well, what's funny here is I always love hearing that, you know, oh, uh, uh, I believe in—I don't believe in religion. I believe in Jesus. Now, most of the people who say this are Christians, and I would point them back to James uh, 127, which uh, talks about how pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, you know, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So the Bible itself affirms that religion is a good thing. Religion is just man's response to God. You're saying, I'm not religious, I just have a relationship with Jesus. Well, you are religious. Your response to God is having a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, what they're saying is, well, I don't believe in a church or God's authority being with any institution on earth. And I'll go back to Jesus and say, where did Jesus say he only wants to have a personal relationship with people? Jesus never, Jesus never A, told anyone to write down, before, prior to his ascension into heaven, he never said to write any of his words down, even. He never talked about creating a Bible. He never talked about Christianity being a relationship with him and believers. Uh, rather, what Jesus said is that he came to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth, and he came to establish his church, to build his church. And he spoke about the church not as an invisible bond between believers, but as something that's authoritative, that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones and judge. Luke ten sixteen: he who hears you, the apostles, hears me. He gives the apostles authority to bind and loose, to forgive sins, to baptize uh, he gives authority to those he's delegated to his disciples and, and the apostles, and then they we see in the the old in the New Testament they go and give that authority to others that they lay hands on. Not that everyone just has their own authority. Now there is a universe. Saint Peter does talk about a universal priesthood of believers. That's true, but just the fact that there's a universal priesthood and that Jesus is our high priest does not mean there's no ministerial priesthood. When we look in the New Testament. We see example after example. We talk about how the presbyters in James 5 uh, perform the anointing of the sick, and you're supposed to confess our sins not to God, but to one another. Uh, So we still see that God has given us his kingdom on earth, just like the kingdom of Israel had a prime minister and those uh, who led the people while God was king. Uh, In the church, we have the successors of the apostles who take on that same role with Christ as our high priest and king. 
Yeah, I had I had Lawrence Feingold on on the podcast a few episodes ago who unpacked the idea of the Old Testament uh, and the Catholic Church in the Old Testament and typology. And he is, his response was actually the Catholic Church is so prefigured in the Old Testament it might be too obvious for non Christian <laughs> Catholics to see. Yes, yes. I thought that was pretty. <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I find it so interesting that there is this real movement. Um, in evangelical circles right now that I'm, I'm still, I still have a lot of friends. We still have a lot of friends in evangelical circles. So I come across this on Facebook and on Twitter and social media, but there's this real movement um, against biblicism in the evangelical church right now. This idea that there's been too much emphasis placed on the Bible and not enough on the centrality of Christ, which I mean, I think is a natural outgrowth of relying on the Bible alone. And I think we as Catholics rightly have the tradition and the church to help us frame the Bible. But this movement that I'm seeing is trying to understand the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And of course, the question then begins, which becomes, which lens of Jesus is the right one? So my question for you, I guess, in light of this, in light of evangelicals trying to focus more on Christ than on the Bible, how, what advice would you give for people trying to find the, the real Jesus? Well, I, I think it's important here, and they are, it's interesting, they're, they're kind of one step forward, two step back almost. Uh, they move forward a bit, but also backwards. In one sense, they're correct. The Catechism talks about how uh, Jesus is the one perfect utterance of the Father. He is the Word. Uh, but the problem is that for us to know and come to know the Son in that revelation, it can't be confined merely to Jesus. We wouldn't be able to access that. So that's why the Word of God has to be given to us in written and unwritten form. So I think what's helpful here is maybe we could see, well, we want to know Jesus, who is the Word, and we have the Word of God, which they see as Scripture, but there's a sense of it being incomplete. Like, we can only get so far in the Word of God. Like, it's not enough. And so they're leapfrogging from that to the Word when they've missed something else, which is the Word of God that's also given to us in unwritten form, which is sacred tradition. To help, sacred tradition such as in how to read the Word of God, how to know how the faith is lived out in every generation. So I think that, that can be helpful that if there's a sense of something lacking in Biblicism, that that really reveals, I think, a flaw in Sola Scriptura, that no, the Bible is not uh, the, the, the ultimate authority or in the sense that it's the it's complete revelation for us. I know Protestants will say, well, there's general revelation, right? But the idea of the truths of our faith that go beyond what we can know by reason, like the existence of God, they would say, well, that's just found in the Bible. Uh, but I think many of them, when they do this study, see that it becomes somewhat inadequate. Yeah. So how would you, I mean, I guess the question then then becomes, which which Jesus, if you want to, and I've and I've also had friends who said it this way, you the Bible is one thing, but we have to kind of get through the Bible to Jesus to know oh, sure. what he really taught. Well, that, that's, I, I would love to sit down and see what, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Because on the one hand, as I said before, if you just have Scripture alone uh, as your source, Scripture doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us guidance on a lot of moral and theological topics. We're sort of in the dark. That a lot, I mean, there are heretics, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, who will take the Bible and create a false Jesus out of it. There are Protestants who do that with Jesus. So they see, like, right, we've got the Bible, 
But now how do we get to who Jesus really is? And that's why I think as Catholics, we're blessed to have that encounter with Jesus, that, that Protestants say, well, I want to encounter just, just Jesus. I want to be with Jesus and not just the Bible, even though Jesus is, of course, present in the Word. And I could say, well, guess what? As Catholics, we do have that in the sacraments. We, we can adore him uh, before, after, and during Mass and receive him in Mass during the Eucharist. Uh, in the sacrament of reconciliation, uh, uh, the grace of God moves through us to be reconciled with him and united to Christ once more if we've been separated by mortal sin. So I think that that's another point from the Catholic view to say you're yearning to have this uh, intimate bond with Jesus that goes beyond the words you read in Scripture is a good thing, and Jesus has given us a way for you to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's so well said. What So what about, I think this is my last question for you, what about the idea that um, the Jesus we know um is an imposter in the sense that he was just borrowed and kind of cobbled together from other more ancient pagan myths or something like that. Right. Well, what I try to say here is I say, number one, well, how do you know that? And just try to say, how do you know? And they'll say, well, there's similarities between Jesus and other pagan copycats. And as I show in my book, number one, many of these similarities don't really exist. Uh, you know, Horus was not baptized by someone like John the Baptist and had 12 disciples and was crucified, the Egyptian sun god Horus. No, that, that's not in the Egyptian records. That was made up in the 19th century. Uh, Mithra was not born of a virgin. He came out of a, a rock fully grown. You know, so some of these parallels simply don't exist. Other ones are, are parallels that actually uh, develop in the opposite direction. Apollonius of Tyana sounds a lot like Jesus, but the story of Apollonius was written 300 years later, so it's probably borrowing from Jesus, not the other way around. Uh, and finally, I'd point out that the Jews of Jesus' time were very uh, opposed to pagan mythology, that any kind of blasphemy, they were willing to stone people, uh, you know, they wanted to stone Jesus for saying that he was God. They rioted in the streets when idolatrous shields were erected in Jerusalem. Uh, they were very opposed to pagan influences, so it would be very strange if they suddenly just jumped on board with this by taking a pagan myth and fashioning it in, uh, in first century Judea. Hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> and again, I like your, I, I just appreciate that approach of beginning with, okay, so how do you, which myths? Why do you, why do you say this? Because you begin then to unpack uh, again, probably that, that idea is really not based in a lot of maybe personal research or actual reality, but something that somebody's heard a, a meme, maybe that they're repeating, right? Oh, absolutely. And that's why it's so important to ask, well, how do you know that? And then to learn about our own faith so that we can offer similar answers when people say the same thing to us. So the non-Christian Catholic who is looking to know Jesus, to know who he is, who sees the Catholic Church as this monolithic kind of too many rules thing that's just putting stuff in the way of, of knowing who Jesus was. What would you say to that person who might hear this podcast, who just feels like there's no way to approach this thing? Like this isn't, Jesus is not in there anywhere. You know, and I've heard this before. I, I've heard this from people who have, who've gone to Catholic school, high school their whole lives, who would have said, no, I didn't hear about Jesus as a Catholic. What would you say to those people how can they find Jesus in the Catholic Church? I think what I would say to them is that you should first just turn to God in prayer, that if you, be if you believe at least that Jesus exists, open your heart to him in prayer and to ask him to make himself better known to you. In John 14, Jesus says that 
Uh, he and the Father want to dwell in men's hearts. Uh, so I, I would just start there to, to, have, to have an openness to that. And then just to try and find people, Catholics, there are some Catholics who don't live out their faith. There's Protestants who don't live out their faith. They can be bad examples, and that can be very unfortunate and scandalous. But to find Catholics who have a deep love of Jesus uh, and to either uh, imitate them, shadow them, or learn from them, this could be people you know, uh, holy people who attend Mass and uh, pray constantly, or read the writings of the saints who, who had a deep love for Jesus, and that can affect you. So reading... St. Therese of Lisieux, for example, the, the little flower, the child of Jesus. Uh, to, to, you know, there's different saints who have different personalities that can affect different people. The way that St. Thomas Aquinas relates to Jesus is going to be different than St. Therese, and that's good for different people's personalities. And the second, I really do believe in the power of someone praying before the Blessed Sacrament and just being still and knowing that he is God and, and offering up prayer there. Even if you're saying, well, I, I have a hard time believing this is Jesus, just be still and don't talk so much and just listen and allow yourself to try to grow and walk more with Jesus in these ways where you really can uh, come to know him. <laughs> that's, oh, that's unbelievable. I was writing down here on, my, on a piece of paper because I was going to ask you about that because something you said earlier was exactly that idea that, and this reminds me of something that I think Peter Kreeft said, and I think it might have been on, on an episode of Catholic Answers Live, but his challenge when he was asked, what would you challenge non-Christian or non-Catholic Christians with? What should they do if they want to approach the Catholic Church? He said, go to adoration, pray before the Blessed Sacrament. So I was going to ask you what you thought of that, and that was your second part and of the you, answer. Now you have the answer. There you go. <laughs> That's maybe a bit of serendipity. Yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, writing that down just here. Yeah, and I think that's a fantastic, you know, response, a fantastic approach to it, I think, right? If, and that's, a, that's what, if, if God is present, if Jesus is present in the Blessed Sacrament, if the Catholic Church is what it says that it is, then, then God wants everyone to be a part of that Catholic Church, all Christians, right? And he will call them into it if they truly seek that out, Right. Right. Uh, God wants, First Timothy 2.4, God wants all people to be saved, and God wants all people to come to the fullness of his revelation, to have that full communion with him and his church. Now, some things will might be Im impediments for people, doubts or, or concerns or spiritual woundedness or sin, and our job as evangelists is to help people overcome their doubts, help people find answers to their questions, and help people to be freed from their sins so they can enjoy eternal life with God. Yeah, and you know what? You do a fantastic job of that in your books and your podcasts and your speaking and on Catholic Answers. And uh, I speak for lots and lots and lots of Catholics when I say, we, you know, I really appreciate the work that you do, and it's just fantastic. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the work that you're doing as well. <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks for being on this podcast. It's been a fantastic conversation, I think, and I think the listeners will really enjoy it. Where can they find out more about you? Uh, they can find out more about me. I think the best place to go is to check out my podcast at trendhornpodcast.com. Uh, so they can go there uh, to hear what my thoughts on different issues. And you can always check out my books at an online book retailer. But they can probably go to trendhornpodcast.com. Yeah, that's fantastic. And it is a fantastic podcast. It's great. And I love the direction it's going in as well. It's really developing into a really interesting conversation place for conversations. And I just love it. And I know listeners who... May, maybe haven't heard it. I, I doubt that there are many that haven't heard of it, but I uh, should definitely check that out. 
Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Of course. Happy to be here. Okay, take care and God bless. God bless. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion that Trent and I had. I hope you found it edifying and interesting, and I hope you learned something too. I hope you're better equipped now to discuss and explain and even correct those false understandings of Jesus. I think Trent's approach to ask questions to understand your interlocutor first is incredibly helpful. It makes the discussion more fruitful and more meaningful and more pointed. It's a fantastic approach, and if you've ever heard Trent in a debate or a discussion or on Catholic Answers Live radio show or podcast, you'll hear just how effective that approach is. It's a fantastically effective approach, and Trent's really a pioneer in this area for asking questions first before beginning to outline an argument or a discussion. He's fantastic at it. Check out our website, thecordialcatholic.com, for show notes for my blogs and articles I'm writing and posting and sharing. We're on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, on Twitter at Cordial Catholic, and my email is cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love your feedback. If you want to support the show, visit patreon.com slash cordialcatholic, where even $1 a month can help to keep hosting fees paid for and the lights on and the show running. I'll be here next week. Hopefully you join me. Thank you to all my patrons. Thank you to listeners. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you get this podcast. Please leave reviews on iTunes and ratings. That helps to push the show out to new people, and I really appreciate that too. See you next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.